you have a Bible, you can turn to Genesis 47. Like I said, we're wrapping up this study in the book of Genesis. Um, we'll have three weeks left, including this week, so we'll be here um, this Sunday. Then uh, I mentioned that Henry is going to preach for us next Sunday. And then we will have two more sermons in Genesis, and then we will have wrapped it up. Um, I thought I just want to encourage you. If, I know a lot of you have approached me and said that the study has been helpful. It's been good to go through Genesis, and I would 100% agree. Um, and I thought if uh, if you have a testimony of something specific that the Lord has taught you in our time with Jacob or Isaac or Joseph, um, I'm not talking a, a full sermon, but if you have uh, 30 seconds, a minute, two minutes of something that you think you would say, this is what the Lord's taught me over the past few weeks, um, let me know. I think over the next uh, two, three weeks, it'd be neat to have some people share, here's what God has taught me um, as we've been in the book of Genesis. Not everyone wants to do that, uh, but if you're interested or if you want to even write something down and I'll read it for you, uh, just let me know. Uh, I'd love to, to do that. But we're in Genesis 47. This morning, there's a summary verse um, at the end here of, of in, in verse 27. So you remember that um, that Joseph, I want to apologize at the beginning for confusing Joseph and Jacob, because it's going to happen all this morning, okay? But that Joseph had blessed his whole family. Um, he blessed all the land of Egypt. And then we have this summary statement in Genesis 47:27. Thus Israel, Jacob, settled in the land of of Egypt in the land of Goshen and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And so there's this remember we said this is sort of the incubation phase for the nation of Israel. This is when they prosper, this is when they grow in number, it's when they grow in possessions and they are blessed in this place. And now that the children of Israel have settled in and they are secure in Egypt, Jacob looks to the future and he's seeking to, to set his family up to fully receive all of these blessings that he has been told, all of God's covenant promises. He wants to make sure that they are heading down that path to see the promises of Abraham and to Isaac and to him to see those fulfilled into the future. And the way that he's going to do that is through a series of speeches or, or blessings. And there's, there's three that we can see. They begin here at the end of chapter 47, and they will extend all the way through to the end of chapter 49. So the first one we'll look at this morning is in 47, 28 through 31, and he sort of arranges for his burial, and he makes Joseph the head of, of his family group, of his clan, and entrusts all the funeral arrangements to him. We'll also look at all of chapter 48, which is where Jacob adopts Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and think about why does he do that. And then um, in two Sundays, we will look at all of chapter 49 where he pronounces blessings on all 12 of his children and what he's doing there. But this week we're going to think about those two, how, how, how Jacob establishes Joseph as the leader of the family who will be responsible for his father's funeral and how um, Jacob then adopts and blesses Joseph's sons. And as we think about these words of Jacob just before his death, he gives us some, some perspective like so much of this story has been just giving us perspective about who God is and, and how he works. And he helps us to see how we should think about the past and how we should think about the future and what faith looks like. And I think there, there are two lessons. These are not new to our study, but we'll summarize them this way. Lessons that we can learn from Jacob here. And hopefully we can learn these before we are on our own deathbed, as Jacob is, but that we could walk with them. 
And these are the two lessons. God's promises are certain. God's ways are surprising. So that's our big idea for this morning. God's promises are certain and or but God's ways are surprising. And I woven throughout these final chapters and specifically this morning, we we see these twin truths. And, and Jacob here exemplifies that he has come to see this. He's come to see that God's promises are certain, but he's also come to see that God's ways are often very surprising. You know, the Christian life from beginning to end is a life of faith. It's, it's a journey that we're on. It's a sojourning. And throughout this journey, we are called to, to trust God. We're to trust what he is doing and who he is. And Jacob shows us here, you can trust what God says, that what he says, he will do. But you can also trust that you'll probably be surprised by the way that he does what he is going to do. He's going to accomplish his purposes, his purposes, but he's going to do it in surprising ways with unlikely people and in unexpected, unexpected timing and not at all the way that we thought he was going to do it. And the more that we see that, the more that we see that, I think the steadier we will be, the more faith we can have. Often when things don't go the way we expected them, we lose faith. But if we can be like Jacob and say, well, God can be trusted, but he just acts in ways that I might not expect, then our faith doesn't fail. It stays strong. Because we're expecting that. So let me read uh, Genesis 47. And I'll start in verse 28. And we'll read through the end of of chapter 48. Genesis uh, 47 beginning in verse 28. And Jacob lived lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, Put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. After this, Joseph was told, behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh, And Ephraim, and it was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you and I will make of you a company of peoples and will give you give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now. Your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers and their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, These are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, 
God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given you, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. These stories are always fun to read and to think about the scene that is unfolding before us. And as we think about these truths that God's promises are certain and his ways are surprising, um, we're going to look first at these final verses of chapter 47. Uh, we'll just divide into two parts, the, these final verses of 47 and then the first part, or the, and then chapter 48. And we'll just kind of think about them in sort of what, what is Jacob saying to Joseph. And in this first section, Jacob is saying, Joseph, promise to take me home. That's that's sort of his last request, one of his last requests. He says, Joseph, promise to take me home. And that's in 47, 28 to 31. Uh, verse 28 talks about how uh, Jacob was in Egypt for 17 years, bringing the, the grand total of the years of his life to 147 years. And it causes us, as we read that verse, to think that the next thing that's going to happen is Jacob's death is going to be recorded. That's usually what would happen. But it won't happen until the end of chapter 49 that we hear about uh, Jacob's death. And so all of this is, is sort of on Jacob's deathbed, what he is saying, and its preparations for his death. As part of that preparation, then, we see that he calls Joseph to himself, and he asks him to make a promise. He uses this phrase, put your hand under my thigh. Now, that's what Abraham said to his servant before he sent him out. You remember to find a wife for his son Isaac. Sounds like a strange practice to you and me. We make promises. We're good just kind of with a handshake. Um, but this was the custom of the time, and it indicated that this was a solemn oath, and it indicated the depth of relationship uh, that was there. So Abraham, when he makes this oath with his servant, um, he does the same thing. Put your hand under my thigh, and he says he wants to find him to find a, a wife for Isaac who is not a Canaanite, and he wants to be sure that, that Isaac does not leave the land of Canaan. I point that out because as Israel makes this oath with Joseph, he says, don't leave me in Egypt. 
but take me back to Canaan and bury me there. And so in both situations, the land is so important. Jacob is, is very emphatic. He says, deal kindly and truly with me. He makes him swear. It seems as if uh, Joseph at first says, yeah, sure, Dad, I'll take you back to Canaan. That's fine. And then his dad says, no, I want you to swear to me that you will do it. And Joseph says, okay, I'll do it. I swear. And, and in this desire, I, Jacob is not saying that it's wrong that they are in Egypt. Um, that's already been secured. You remember that God encourages uh, Jacob to go. He says, this is what you need to do. He knows that it's going to increase them. They're going to prosper in the land. This is all part of, of God's plan. But he is also 100% positive that that is not where the people of Israel will stay forever. He is sure that they will leave. He's, he's positive of it. He promised that back in 46. Jacob knows the promises made to Abraham. He knows the promises made to Isaac. He knows they are going back to Canaan. And even in death, he, he wants to be with his people in this, this land of promise. It shows this request that he wants to be back in Canaan. It shows that, that God's promises can be trusted. He knows that they will not stay in Egypt. He knows that God will deliver them. I won't belabor the point because we saw it last week, but for us again, our home is not in the kingdom of this world. Our longing is for Emmanuel's land. Our longing is for God's kingdom. And at death, that's the home that we are thinking about. That's what Jacob is thinking about. This isn't where I live. I live in Canaan. I live in God's promised land. And Jacob is sure that, that God's promise of the land can be trusted and we can be sure in the face of death that our home is secure, that God will take us to the land of promise. So God's promises can be trusted, but also note that the fact that Jacob is asking Joseph to do this shows us that God's ways are surprising. You can imagine Jacob slowly growing older in the land of Canaan, and he probably never thought that Joseph was going to be the guy that cared for him in death. never even crossed his mind. Yet here he is, he's instructing his favorite son how to care for him in death. In our day, we call this power of attorney. That's essentially what's going on here. Um, that, that Jacob is saying to Joseph, you are in charge. You have the authority to act on my behalf. And also, you are in control after I leave. You're 11th in line, but you will lead your brothers. The scene then ends with Israel bowing. Um, you see that he bows himself upon the, the head of his bed. Somewhat confusing phrase. It probably means that he's acknowledging God's divine care and protection. John Walton, a commentator, says, Jacob's bowing at the head of his bed is an acknowledgement of divine care that has allowed him to pass clan leadership successfully to his son, Joseph. Jacob bows in reverence. He bows in gratitude for all that God has brought him through and that God has brought his son back from the dead. God has reunited them. I mean, at any point in his life, just imagine Jacob's life. Is there any point in his life where he says, I'm going to be 147 years old. I'm going to be living in the land of Egypt and my son Joseph will be by my side. I mean, that's nothing that he could ever have imagined. But he sees God's hand and he trusts God's promises and the unique way that God has worked. We'll keep fleshing these ideas out. But so Jacob in this first part says, Joseph says, promise. He said, Jacob says to Joseph, promise to take me home. And he trusts God and he acknowledges the unique way that God has worked in his life. The summary for 48, um, Jacob says this to Joseph. He says, Joseph, your sons are my sons. Your sons are my sons. 
We're told in 47.29 that the time for Jacob's death is getting close. And then here in 48.1, people come and say, Behold, your father is ill. Things have gotten more urgent. We've all, many of us have experienced this. Someone is not doing well, and then it becomes apparent that death is even closer than we thought before. And Joseph is called to his father's bedside. And as he does that, he does what many of us would do. He brings his sons with him. Brings his two sons. Come and, and see your, your grandfather before he dies. They're listed here as Manasseh and Ephraim, which is the last time they will ever be listed in that order. Interesting. They probably would have uh, been close to, if not in their 20s. So if you're imagining them as, as toddlers, remember that, that Jacob has been in the land of Egypt for at least 17 years. So they're at least 17, probably more like their, their early 20s, I would imagine. Um, and we, we see the scene is painted so um, beautifully. It says Israel summoned his strength and, and sat up in bed. This old man who had been a fighter all his life. And, and now at the end here, he just summons everything that he has so he can sit up in bed. I, I don't know if this is true, but in my mind, there's sort of, you know, he's got an old injury in his hip that's just, you know, killing him now after 147 years. And a good reminder of that night that he wrestled with God. I imagine there was small talk. How you doing, Dad? But then Jacob begins speaking and he starts talking about the covenant that was made there. Um, in the land of Canaan, the promise of making his descendants great, of giving them the land of promise. He, he highlights a key moment in his life that happened at, at Luz that night that God appeared to him as he was fleeing from his brother, um, from Esau. It seems so long ago, doesn't it? But just to remember that night when, when God appeared to him. And then also that same place, you remember, is where God appeared to him when he came back into the land of Canaan. And in both instances, God affirms his covenant. God says, I will do what I said I will do. He reiterates those promises made to Abraham and Isaac. And it's out of that covenant promise then that Jacob is going to adopt Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. He tells Joseph that every other child that Joseph has, fine, those are your children. But these two guys, these are mine. They are said, if you notice, it's interesting, um, it's not a passing comment that he says in verse 5, as Reuben and Simeon are. They are in some way a replacement for Reuben and Simeon, Jacob's firstborn children. Now, Reuben and Simeon, Reuben, Reuben, Reuben and Simeon are still Jacob's children, but they no longer have the status of firstborn. Instead, Ephraim and Manasseh are going to be blessed in that way. The reason you remember is because Reuben had slept with his father's wife, Bilhah, and disqualified himself. Simeon, along with Levi, had slaughtered all of those who had defiled their sister Dinah. And because of, of these actions, they have been displaced as firstborn. And in a unique way, Jacob is actually blessing Joseph through his sons and giving him this double portion. This is where the, the, the half-tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh come from. There is no tribe of Joseph. As we look at Israel, it's, it's Ephraim and Manasseh. But the blessing is on Joseph. You kind of see that in verse 15 as he formally blesses them. What does he say in verse 15? He has his hands on, on Manasseh and Ephraim, but he says, it says, and he blessed Joseph. He's blessing Joseph. And then in verse 21, it shows further that the blessing and the adoption of, of these boys is meant to be a blessing on, on Joseph. Jacob talks about how they will go back um, to 
the land of Canaan. God will be with them. And he gives Joseph the only land that he ever owned in Canaan. You remember he bought um, a portion of land in Shechem. Um, but he also is talking about the land, I think, that Simeon and Levi took when they uh, attacked the Shechemites. It says that he used this phrase, with my sword and with my bow, meaning I think that um, Simeon and Levi are an extension of him when they took this land. Now, they acted wickedly, but the land is Jacob's. And so uh, Jacob blesses Joseph. He gives him this land. You know, kind of a little bit of that favoritism still there. He sort of leans in and says, I got something for you. It's not for your brothers. It's just for you. There's some land that's mine, and you can have it when you go back. Just a little, I don't know. He's still, he's still Jacob, isn't he? But we find later, actually, at the end of the book of Joshua, Joseph's bones, you remember, are taken out of the land of Egypt. They're carried with the people of Israel all through the wilderness wanderings. And where does he get buried? Shechem. That's where they bury Joseph, is in the land of Shechem, the land that his father had given him. Amazing. Just a quick note, as we're looking ahead to chapter 49, some of you are asking, what about Judah? I thought Judah's the guy that gets the blessing. Doesn't the seed go through through him? Why isn't he the one being blessed? Why is Joseph being blessed? I think we'll see this more next week, but Judah's line is eventually going to take over leadership, but Joseph has leadership for the present time. Uh, again, John Walton says it very simply, Joseph is to be the leader among the sons. Judah is to be the leader among the tribes. And so there is going to be a shift that happens, but for now, Joseph's in charge. So just a side note there. Now, Ephraim and Manasseh are not only replacements for Reuben and Simeon, but the point of verse 7 where it talks about, about um, Rachel is also that they are replacements for all the children that Rachel would have had if she had not died. Jacob still grieves the loss of Rachel, and I think he's seeking to bless her memory as he adopts these boys. He adopts her grandchildren, and he says, now these adopted children are Rachel's children. So um, Jacob tells Joseph what he's going to do. And then in verse 8, there's sort of this formal ceremony. Um, You may have noticed, if not, let me point it out to you, that this scene is very similar to another time when a couple sons were going to be blessed. You remember that? We're taken back over 100 years to when Jacob walked into his father Isaac's tent. Uh, Isaac, who was old, and blind, just as Jacob is said to be here. Isaac, who blessed the younger rather than the older. They're very similar, aren't they? I'll tell you the one key element that's missing. Deception. There's no deception here. No matter how dark uh, Jacob's eyes might be, no matter how dark this room is, everyone knows exactly what is going on. It's all very clear and in the open. There's, there's a uniqueness to that. So Jacob says, who are these? In verse 8. Uh, it could be poor eyesight, but it, it, it's more likely that this is the start of a, a formal adoption blessing ceremony. It's like the question at a wedding. Who gives this woman to be married to this man? It's, it's more of a, who are these? And, and Joseph answers his father as he's supposed to. These are my sons that the Lord has given me here in Egypt. And he brings the boys near and Jacob en- embraces these boys and kisses them. I say boys, I should say young men probably, if you want to get the picture in your mind. He speaks to them. He embraces them. He says in verse 11 again just how surprised he is. He says, you know, this is the last thing I ever expected. I never thought I'd see you. And now here I am blessing your sons. He's just amazed. It was beyond anything that he could have ever imagined. 
just remember how he bowed his head in awe and he said, you know, I would have never thought, I never thought God would do something this amazing. Oh, maybe that's maybe that's a unique word for someone this morning, that, that things you never expected to happen, things that are beyond even your power to conceive, things that you just say that will never come about, they might happen. And they might be even beyond whatever you're thinking about right now. That's what God is able to do. Joseph bows before his father. He brings the boys and ears to be blessed. And as he does it, he's sure that, that he puts Manasseh in front of Jacob's right hand. And he puts Ephraim in front of Jacob's left hand. The right hand is the hand of, of, of greater blessing. Um, now, Joseph is not being sneaky. He's not being like Jacob. Yeah, this is how the ceremony was supposed to go. If you go to a wedding, the, the bride is on one side. The groom is on the other. This is what is supposed to be happen. Joseph does what he's supposed to do. The person who goes off script is Jacob. He's the one that, that twists things unsurprisingly. He reaches out his hands, and what does he do? He crosses them. I love that. And, and with his crossed hands, he blesses these boys. It's a beautiful blessing. It considers God's goodness, his faithfulness in the past, in the present, and then on into the future. I want us to look at this blessing in verses 15 and 16. And as we do that, here's sort of your point of application. So we can think about this as we look at the, at the blessing. The past and present testify, they, they tell, the past and present testify that God's promises can be trusted into the future. The past and the present testify that God's promises can be trusted into the future. In other words, that as we look at what God has done, as we look at what God is doing, it causes us to be able to trust him as we walk into the unknown of the future. That's how God had, that's how God is, is, is working in Jacob's life. There's three references to God in verses 15 and 16. Well, maybe. Let's talk about it. The first one, Jacob says, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. He looks back, he sees God's faithfulness to Abraham and Isaac, and he sees Abraham and Isaac's faithfulness to God, and he says, this, this is the God who's going to bless you, the God who, before whom Abraham and Isaac walked. The second thing he says, the God who has been my shepherd all my life up to this day. As we've walked with Jacob, we've seen that he often referred to God as the God of his fathers. He's very specific here. The God who has been my shepherd every day of my life, all the way up until right now. He knows that in the present, God has been his, his shepherd. And then um, finally, um, or, or just just a side note, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Doesn't that ring true even in what um, Jacob is saying here? And then there's a final reference that says, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Now, if you look at that, angel is parallel, as it were, to these statements about who God is. And it doesn't have to necessarily be a reference to God. But I just wonder if this is not a reference to, to what we would call the pre-incarnate Jesus. This is Jesus appearing to Jacob. You remember oftentimes when you, when you see the angel of the Lord, that that's a reference to, to Jesus in the Old Testament. And I just wonder, is that what this is? And the word redeem really makes me want to say that it's Jesus. The angel has redeemed me from all evil. I mean, doesn't that sound like Jesus? Isn't, uh, Jesus, the one who redeems us from all evil. And I even wonder, is this some sort of uh, reference to the Trinity? 
Is, is this uh, an allusion to the care of the Father, the, the leading of the Spirit, the redemption of the Son? Is that, is that somewhat what's going on here? I don't know. But wherever you want to follow that, we see that, uh, that Jacob takes God's faithfulness to his fathers. He takes God's faithfulness to him. And out of that, he blesses the future. He blesses Ephraim and Manasseh. He sees what God has done. He trusts, and, and he trusts that God is going to do that for, for these boys. God will continue to work out his plans. And that's, that's how we look at blessing. We look at how we have faith. We can think about that individually. God's past faithfulness to me, his present care for me, lead me to trust him with all the uncertainty of my future. We can think about that corporately. God's past faithfulness to his people and his present care for us give us confidence that, that no threat will ever thwart any of God's promises. We can look back at Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and see that God's promises were sure for them. And then we can trust that he's going to continue to bless his people. He's going to continue to fill, fulfill his promises in the world. God's promises are certain. It's a beautiful blessing that he gives there in verses 15 and 16. But Joseph doesn't agree. <laughs> Joseph looks at this blessing and he says, everything about this is wrong. Why? Because Jacob is exalting the younger above the older. Ironic that Joseph would have an issue with that. <laughs> but Jake, he looks at Jacob and says, Jacob's back to his old ways. He's deceiving. He's, he's tricking Joseph sees him passing on not just this blessing to the wrong person, but he's passing on all this deception, all this strife, all the issues that had been in their family all those years. It had just been strife all over the place. And, and it's as if Jacob is passing that on now to Ephraim and Manasseh. And so Joseph blurts out, no, dad, not this. And he reaches out his hands to physically take Jacob's hand off of Ephraim's head and to put it on Manasseh's head i just in my mind's eye i imagine that joseph is surprised at how strong jacob still is and it maybe doesn't move you know um, and jacob says i know i know my son I, I know what i'm doing it's as if he's saying this is not the deception that happened long ago this isn't the favoritism that caused all the conflict in our family this is this is just how god's going to work don't don't look at this poorly this is just the uniqueness of how God works the surprising way that he works. It's the way that God often works. He often uses unexpected things, unexpected people. All throughout Genesis, this has been the theme. It's not Abel. Abel dies. It's Seth. It's not Ishmael. It's Isaac. It's not Esau. It's Jacob. It's not Rachel, who Jacob loved. It's Leah. It's not Reuben. It's not even Simeon. It's Joseph. And then it's not even Joseph. It's Judah. It happens not just in Genesis, but all throughout. Not it's In Exodus, it's not some revered military captain. Who is it? It's stuttering Moses, the murderer. That's who God uses. You look into, into the kings. It's not his older brothers. Who is it? It's little David, the shepherd. That's who God uses. All the way into the New Testament. It's not a conquering king, but it's, it's a baby born in obscurity. It's not some well-loved national hero, but it's a guy who is despised and rejected by his own people. It's, it's not military might that God uses. What does he use? He uses death on a cross. God's ways are always unexpected. All throughout history and in salvation itself, even when we think about what the gospel is, we expect that good works will save us. 
but it's in fact admitting that we can do nothing good that saves us. We think that our righteousness is what is necessary, but it's the righteousness of Jesus that is necessary. We think that we need to make sacrifices so that we can be acceptable to God, but rather it's the sacrifice of Jesus that makes us acceptable to God. We think there must be many different ways to salvation, but Jesus alone made a way by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And Jacob, when he crosses his hands, he affirms not only that God's promises are certain, but that his ways are so surprising. Jacob not only sees that God works in miraculous ways, but then he actively involves himself in those ways. Let me close with this. This is the application I want us to think about here at the end. Anticipate and participate in God's surprising ways. That sounds really cool. It's just the words that work best, actually. Anticipate and participate in God's surprising ways. So anticipate, meaning we should expect it. Participate, meaning we can actively be involved in it. Because Jacob didn't say, just say, God's going to do whatever he wants. What does he do? He crosses his hands. He sort of enacts that, as it were. He didn't just wait to see God's surprising ways. He, he sought them out. I was trying to think of an illustration. What came to my mind is if you're ever cruising down the highway and there's a huge accident up ahead and, and they, they block the highway off and they, they reroute you, detour, you got to go this way. And say you take that detour and on that detour, it's awesome. You find something amazing, you know, like the biggest ball of twine in Kentucky or something. I don't know. It's, you know, it's just this amazing thing that happens and it wasn't what you expected. But you turned off, and, and, and because you had the right mindset, you were anticipating, hey, maybe this is going to work out even better, that something unique happens. But what if you're driving down the highway and there's no detour, and you just say, let's go this way. <laughs> let's just try this. This isn't the fastest way. This isn't the best way. This isn't the way that I was planning to take. But maybe this will be a unique trip if we go this way. Now, maybe hold that illustration in your mind. I, I don't, I, we can't always predict what God is going to do. I mean, we can hardly ever predict what God is going to do. And that's why I think most of the time we, we just anticipate it. We, we walk through life, we do what we think is best, and God sort of does something unique that we didn't expect. And we pause and we say, yeah, I guess that's how God works. I, I'm surprised, but I'm not surprised. <laughs> I think that's often what we look at when God works. We say, I did not expect that, but I don't know why I didn't expect that. And anticipation is sort of the key. It, it keeps us from, from being thrown off completely when God acts in a way that we would never expect. So God does something unique, and it's hard at first. It shakes us up, but then we say, okay, that doesn't mean that God's not actively involved. That doesn't mean that God's not working. He's just doing things other than I expected. But I also think there's times when we don't just anticipate, but we can participate. We can We can be the ones that sort of, cross our hands. We can look at a situation and say, this is the exact opposite way that I would want to do this. Let's try it. See what God does. <laughs> you take George Mueller or Hudson Taylor. They need to raise funds for gospel work. And they say, the best way to get money to do this work is to make sure that nobody knows we need money. That's the exact opposite of what you would do. But God provides. And then God gets all the glory. Or you look at a person and you say, that is the exact wrong person to do this particular thing. Let's see if they want to do it. And God uses them in an amazing, unique way.
way. In fact, that's all of us, right? Not many noble, not many wise. Why would God work with that way? Why would God work with us? Maybe the better question is, why, why wouldn't he? I mean, maybe the uniqueness of the way he works is just so that it brings him more glory. I think we can anticipate that. We can anticipate that God's going to do something unique, and it helps our faith to not be shaken, but rather to say, I trust God's promises are sure, and I also trust that his ways are mysterious. His ways are uncertain. His ways are unique. But I don't think we should just have our eyes open, but sometimes maybe we would jump in and try something unique. Have greater faith, maybe to take a risk greater trust in seeing who he might be working through. I don't know. I think Jacob, after many years of just seeing that pattern, finally said, you know what? I'm crossing my hands. (laughs) And we'll see what God does. I think the children of Israel learned this lesson too. There's this saying, it says, at the end of 48, a saying becomes embedded in their culture. Verse, Verse 20, so he blessed them that day, saying, by you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh, this is something that becomes a part of their culture. God bless you as Ephraim and Manasseh, not Manasseh and Ephraim, Ephraim and Manasseh. So God's people would always remember that they can trust his promises fully. But also, as far as how he will work, sometimes it's surprising. Sometimes it's not at all what we expected. We would have thought that the blessing would be God make you as Manasseh and Ephraim. But that's not how God works. He works in amazing, unique ways. And so we're all sojourning. We're all wandering through this life, and we have no idea what the future holds. We don't know good or bad, but we can walk in faith because we know some things. We know that God's promises are certain, that what he says he will do. But we can also know, and it can build our faith, we can also know that God's ways are surprising, that he does unique things that we don't expect, and that's not meant to shake our faith. Because that's who our God is. And we can trust that he's doing something, even when we didn't expect it. We can trust that he's been with our fathers. That's how he worked with them. We can trust that he's been our shepherd. We can trust that he will redeem us from all evil. His promises are certain. And his ways are surprising. pray that our faith is increased by seeing that and seeing that Jacob saw that. Let's take a moment of silence and we will uh, reflect on God's word and then we'll close in a song. But let's take a moment of silence together. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Lord, we are reminded this morning of that. We think we know what's best, but we know that you know what's best. We know that you will do everything that you said. Your promises will come true. That you've accomplished salvation. You did it in a way that no one expected. You will come back. We want you to come back now. We think now is the right time, but you know what's best. We look at our lives and we see all these things going on and we know exactly what needs to happen, but you know better. So Lord, we trust you. We trust that you will do what you say. We trust 
that even when you act in unique ways, in mysterious ways, in ways that we do not expect, that you are in control. Lord, help us to anticipate that. Help us to jump in and be a part of all the ways that you're working for your glory. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Hear this blessing from God's word. Now may the God before whom our fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who was Jacob's shepherd all his days, the God who in Christ has redeemed us from all evil, bless you and make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. Amen.